Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Zechariah 6, verses 14 and 15. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobiah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Father, we ask that you would give us the spiritual power to obey your voice, to hear what you speak to us, and to put what you say into action. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So obviously our text this morning is in the immediate aftermath of what we saw last week about this coronation that happens inside the temple. In fact, really these two passages could be read together as just one story, but I thought it would be worthwhile to take some time on Palm Sunday and reflect a little bit more on the significance of the crown in the temple. It's a remarkable scene that we saw last time. The exiles are solicited for their silver and their gold. It's fashioned into a crown, and then they enter into the temple, which, remember, is being restored, is being rebuilt. And in that structure, that already not yet dwelling place for God, They place the crown upon the head of Joshua, the high priest. But they do this with no intention that he will rule. They place the crown on his head, and then, as it were, they take it off. And they do something else with it. They keep the crown in the temple, it says here, as a reminder to the exiles. Every time they walk into the temple, they will see the crown and they will be reminded of what that crown means. So the question is, why put the crown in the temple? What's the significance? What is the message exactly? What are they meant to be reminded of when they see that crown? Because whatever it is that they're meant to be reminded of, we're meant to be reminded of it as well. And so we need to understand the significance of this symbol. And in our text, in verses 14 and 15, we see the reason for the crown, what it signifies, what message it sends. And if we had to sum it up, I'd say you could could sum it up in, in two parts. They're kind of two assurances or messages. The first one is to remember. And the second one is, don't worry. Remember and don't worry. Remember, your king is coming. When they walk into the temple, they see the crown. They're meant to remember that the king who has been promised is coming. The king who will wear the crown is coming. So remember. But not only that, we see in the second part of our text, those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple. Another kind of message. Don't worry. Don't worry, more builders are coming. Don't worry, more builders are coming. Because remember, these are the questions the people have. Will the temple ever be finished? Will the kingdom ever be restored? 
And the crown and the temple speaks to those questions. It says, remember your king is coming, and don't worry, more builders are coming as well. They're on the way. So what that means is, instead of focusing on your own houses, the way that people were doing when Haggai began to speak, instead of being uh, caught up in your personal cares and concerns and neglecting the house of the Lord, don't be consumed by those cares. And don't be anxious either. Don't be worried about whether or not the kingdom will come. Don't be, in other words, consumed by doubt. Don't be caught up in your own cares. Don't be consumed by doubt about whether or not the the promise is true. Instead, remember the king is coming and don't worry. More builders are coming. The promise will be fulfilled and it's not up to you alone to do the work. But if that's the case, then what's left for you? If you're not going to spend your time focused on your own cares and concerns, and you're not going to spend your time worried and fearful that everything that you've been promised won't come to pass, what are you going to do? How will you use your time? So there's a third message as well implied here. You need to ask yourself, what am I here to contribute? If I'm not here to to please myself, and I'm not here to worry and agonize, maybe I'm here to contribute. Maybe God has given me something to contribute to the work. And that's the question that I need to explore. So we're going to look at each of those three things and think about them a little bit. First, remember your king is coming. The crown is placed inside the temple as a memorial. Right, a reminder, so that as people enter in, they will be reminded of the coming king. And obviously, that reminder is intended for the exiles, because we're told this is going to be a reminder too, and then these guys are mentioned again, who contributed and sacrificed their wealth so this coronation could take place. But there's actually more to this reminding than you may realize, because Placing the reminder in the temple has a special significance. Now, you could put a sign out in the city somewhere, and people passing it would be reminded, and that'd be really helpful for them. But this isn't a sign out on the street. This is a sign inside the temple, the place where human beings and God dwell together. So a sign there, a reminder there, is not just a reminder to the human beings. It's also a reminder to God. Now, you may think, why does God need reminders? Surely God has a perfect memory. Well, he does. But in Scripture, this word remember, like memory, is a covenantal act. If you go back to the book of Exodus, when the people are in bondage and they cry out to God, we're told in Exodus that when God heard the cry, he remembered his covenant with Abraham. Now, Moses, in writing those words, isn't thinking, well, God had somehow lost track of his promises. He forgot about Abraham and then sounds like, oh yeah, right. I did say I was going to keep covenant with these people. Rather, memory is the sense that ties the present to the promises of the past. So to show that God is unchanging, we're, we're reminded that he remembers the promises that he's made. 
And when he calls us to remember through memorials, or when he says to us in his commandments, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he's speaking to us covenantally. His memory and covenant are tied together. So an object placed in the temple testifies to the worshipers, but it also testifies to God as well. It's before the face of God as a constant assurance. It's like a seal on the promise, functioning in a similar way to the way that the sacraments function. A reminder to us and a seal to God's promises. One commenter on this says, the crown serves as an assurance for the people of God's determination to bring these things to pass. That crown became a tangible sign. You could see it. Maybe they'd let you touch it. I'm not sure. But you knew it was there. It was concrete. And it testified. It reminded you that your king is coming. We don't have the same doubts that they did about whether this was true. We know that the king did come. Because the word that was spoken to the people then, and the sign that was given to them as a reminder, that word was actually fulfilled by the coming of Jesus, the King. That's what we celebrate today on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of the King into the royal city of Jerusalem. As we read in our lectionary reading in Matthew 21, the details of his entry into Jerusalem were actually prophesied. And the gospel authors, looking back, were able to say, when Jesus entered in as king and was heralded as king, it was all done as the prophet had foretold. But they don't mention what prophet they're talking about. But if you look at your footnotes, your cross-references, you'll discover the prophet they're referring to is none other than Zechariah. It was Zechariah who said this would happen. And when it happened, they realized that the word that was given to the prophet had been fulfilled. We haven't gotten there yet, but this is in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And if you're wondering, like, what is the message of the crown? What is the theme song? What music should be playing in your ear when you see that crown in the temple? Zechariah gives us the song. He says in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not only do the Gospels record this event and illustrate vividly the connection between the prophecy of Zechariah and the fulfillment of in the life of Christ, but two out of four Gospels actually cite the passage from Zechariah. They quote you the verse so that you know that this is the fulfillment of those words. The thing the crown and the temple promised, it actually came true in the triumphal entry when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And at that moment, it's important to reflect on what the people were acknowledging. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he was explicitly recognized as the Messiah, as the Davidic monarch. If you look at the words that the people shout, they say in in Luke 19, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Like we were told you were coming. 
We were promised this would happen. There was a crown in the temple saying one day the rightful king will appear in Jerusalem and the words they shout acknowledge you are him. Jesus is the one who was promised. Not only that, but in singing their hosannas, they are worshiping that king as well. They say hosanna and they're offering worship to the Messiah. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. This is why the Pharisees rebuke them. Because what they're saying, that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God. If that's true, then the Pharisees are under obligation to worship him, which they don't want to do, and they rebuke him. And that's when Jesus points out that if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. All creation would cry out. There's no way that the king is going to enter his royal city and not be praised. Creation won't stand for your silence, in other words. Today of all days, Jesus will be praised. And so they wave their branches and they throw them into his path to line his path. We would say like rolling out the red carpet to welcome him. And those palm branches thrown into the road are like so many crowns cast at his feet to honor him. But to understand the full significance of those branches, You also need to know a little bit more about the story. Oftentimes, we stop at the triumphal entry. We see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, and we don't ask ourselves, when he gets there, where does he go? Where does Jesus head once he gets into Jerusalem? Does he stop by, get some food? Does he get a hotel room? Like, what does he do? What are his priorities? Well, if you were paying attention in the night visions, you kind of know already the the path he's going to travel. Because remember, the visions take us from the outside to the inside. We go from from out in the world into the land. We go from the land into the city and from the city into the temple. And that's exactly what Jesus does. When Jesus enters the city, he goes to the temple. This is why in the Gospels you see immediately after this, the cleansing of the temple where Jesus is a zeal for God's house and he drives out the money changers. In Mark's Gospel in chapter 11 Verse 11, we see he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. So we have the king coming, but now we're thinking about the temple. And that reminds us of that other assurance. Don't worry, more builders are coming. So why go to the temple? Why is that Jesus' focus when he enters the city? The people have been assured Don't worry, more builders are coming, more to come and help to build the temple. More exiles would return from Babylon and strengthen the work so that the temple could be restored. They would come and help to build. So it's not surprising that when the king who was promised enters into Jerusalem, the first place he goes is to the temple, whose construction has everything to do with God's presence with us. The temple is God's dwelling place with man. And so Jesus goes to this place because he intends to build a temple. Because he intends to create a place through us and in us where God is pleased to dwell. And the palm branches have a special significance where the temple is concerned. If you look at your palm branches... They're not as ordinary as they may seem. The palm branches come from the palm tree, and the palm tree is a tree that you would counter in oases, in these sort of desert 
places where water blooms and you'll find like a little speck of life in the midst of the wilderness. And so the palm branch always speaks to that sense of life. But if you'd gone into Solomon's temple, you would have seen that it was decorated with artistic motifs that resembled palm branches. You would see, as it were, stylized palm trees everywhere, which weren't just to signify an oasis, but were there to signify the garden, the place where human beings and God had dwelled together the way God had made us to dwell with him. In the book of Ezekiel, when Ezekiel sees the vision of the temple that is to come, it's all decorated with these palm branch motifs. So the palm branches should make you think of the temple. Not only that, remember the Feast of Tabernacles? During the Feast of Tabernacles, when the people would go out and they would build tents for themselves, they would live out in the wilderness, they would rough it for seven days the way people had done in the olden days as a reminder. Well, those tabernacles, those tents were constructed. As we saw, olive wood was one of the woods you could use to build your booth or your tabernacle. But you know what the roof was constructed out of? These palm branches on the roof of the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle, as I say, was a tent. Before there was a temple, there was a tent of meeting, a tabernacle where God met with his people. That's what was signified by the palm branches in the Feast of Tabernacles, God's dwelling place with man. Obviously, tabernacles reference the temple, God's dwelling place, his presence with us. So the palms on the original Palm Sunday had a temple significance. The reason why they were waving palm branches, throwing those branches at Jesus' feet, is that they were acknowledging the king has come God is present to dwell with us. It would have made perfect sense to them, just as it did to Jesus, that if God has come to dwell with us, his first destination would be his house, would be the temple of God. Even in John's gospel, in the account of Christ's incarnation, you may know in John 1.14, in the Greek, that word is used when We're told the word became flesh and dwelled among us. The word dwelled there, if you translated it literally, would be something like tented. He came and tended among us or tabernacled among us. That's what Christ was doing. Christ in his body was coming to dwell with us, to build a dwelling place with us, literally out of us, to build the house of God. So the memorial that the crown speaks to seems to have two parts. One is this reminder about those who are far off, that they will come and they will come and help to build. In the immediate context, obviously, this spoke to more exiles in Babylon. There were still more people who hadn't returned. As we learned earlier, the the restoration of the temple is happening early in this phase that's going to take a long time. At this point, Ezra and Nehemiah haven't arrived yet. So this promise that others will come probably includes people like that who will come and help to rebuild. But ultimately, we think about another people who are far off who will come and help to build the nations, the Gentiles. The mystery of the gospel that God intended before the foundation of the world to have not only Jew but Gentile. 
Jew and Greek, as we saw in our assurance of pardon earlier, with no distinction built into the body of Christ. They would come and help to build. Now, the branch, the Messiah, was the one who would build the temple. But what kind of help could these exiles offer him? They could be his workers, or they could be his bricks. They could be what the temple was constructed out of because the house of God is made of the people of God. In Paul's description of the church in Ephesians 2, you see that very clearly. A passage that ends with the the idea of construction, that, that Christ is the cornerstone, the prophets and the apostles are the foundation, and we're like the, the building blocks that put it all together. But what's interesting is that entire passage, when you look at it, actually recreates this, this two-part emphasis of Zechariah's prophecy. It ends with building the building out of the people, but it begins with the idea of those who are far off being brought near. Paul says, but now in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So the exiles would return. All God's people would be brought in to help to build this body temple, to construct this dwelling place. And when that happens, Zechariah's prophecy says, you will know that the Lord has sent me. Literally, the building of the church will be the sign that Christ, Jesus, is the one who was promised. The church itself will testify that Jesus is Lord. So remember, your king is coming, and don't worry, more builders are coming as well. These are the assurances. You have no reason to be self-absorbed in your own cares, and no reason to be doubtful and anxious, but having had those things taken from you, what's left for you to do? You have to ask yourself, what can I contribute? In a sense, the crown in the temple is clearing the way. So that we can focus on contribution instead of on those other things. The crown in the temple, that message, it awakens us out of our selfish preoccupation. It reminds us that the king is coming, so we should be living as his people and not indifferent to the coming of his kingdom. That message also banishes our fears of abandonment and failure by assuring us that God is drawing more exiles, many more, back to himself to build. If you are absorbed in your own life and your own cares and concerns, you just don't have time to think about the kingdom. Or if when you think about the kingdom, you're filled with anxiety and fear and worry about the direction of the culture and the way that the world is going and and, and the idea that the, the light will be overcome by the darkness, the crown in the temple says, stop, stop. Both of these are sinful absorptions and you've been called away from these things because you've been raised up by God to make a contribution and that's what you need to be focused on. Once all the rest is wiped away, what's left to focus on is simply obedience. 
the call of Zechariah is a call to diligent obedience. What can I contribute? What has God raised me up to do? Now, the triumphal entry, as we think about it, becomes a kind of crown in the temple, a, a, a reminder, a picture that has a message to us, a reminder, a memorial that points towards future fulfillment. When Jesus enters Jerusalem immediately, this act points to the victory of the cross. Within a week, the triumph over death and sin will have taken place. But that picture also points to the far future, not only to the immediate victory, but to the ultimate victory, the climax that comes when the king returns in the second coming, when Jesus comes again. So the crown in the temple, the triumphal entry, assures us that more are coming, that Jesus will call his people to himself, but also calls us to diligent obedience. And here we have to uh, confront an error that we often find in the church, which can be summarized in, in this attitude. Uh, Christ obeyed so that I don't have to. Christ obeyed so that I don't have to. And people often think when they say things like that, that they are uh, advocating for grace. But in fact, what they're doing is ignoring an important part of the gospel. Yes, it's true that Christ's perfect obedience satisfies the requirements of the law on our behalf. That's something that we could never have done with our imperfect obedience. So there's no sense in which we, through obedience, can merit the favor of God. There is no work of salvation that is left for us to do. It's not that Jesus did most of it so that you could finish the job Jesus did it all, and all the credit and glory is due to him. However, Christ's obedience calls us, by example, to obedience through imitation. Christ says, be like me, do what I did, and Christ was obedient, diligently obedient. Now, our obedience is very different from the obedience of the world, or the obedience of most religion. Because this is an obedience that's not driven by fear of condemnation. We don't obey to curry favor or to appease the wrath of God because that's been done. That's not necessary or even possible for us. Instead, our obedience is driven by gratitude for deliverance. We obey, we follow after Jesus out of gratitude for what he's done. Last time, I said this, we crown him, we crown Jesus with our sacrifices. We crown him with our sacrifices. But we need to add one thing to that. We crown him with our sacrifices and we build his body with our diligent obedience. We crown him with sacrifices and we build his body through diligent obedience. Now, sacrifice and obedience can be hard words for us, and we're accustomed to hearing words like that twisted and abused and taken out of context. So let me give you different words that mean the same thing. When we talk about sacrifice and the need to crown him through sacrifice, think of sacrifice as repurposing. Repurposing. Your life is full of stuff. Your life is full of, of not only material things, and resources, but also talents and time, gifting, that sort of thing. And 
all of that stuff in order to sacrifice it for God, what you've got to do is essentially repurpose it. Take what was being used to serve yourself and use it instead to serve God, repurposing. And if we think of sacrifice as repurposing, let's think of obedience simply as action. It's funny, people never come to me as a pastor and say, what must I obey? No one is looking for more rules to obey. No one is looking for more hoops to jump through. But people are constantly saying, what should I do? What do I need to do? Well, it's the same thing. Obedience is action. Obedience just means taking action on what God has said. To obey him diligently is not to let him tell you something and then ignore it. It's to hear what he says and then say, how can I put this into action? What can I do in order to build the body of Christ? So we've been called to repurpose the gifts that have been given to us and to take action on what he has said because all of the self-absorption and all of the fear that distracts us has been banished, has been pushed away. And all that's left for us to do is to repurpose and to take action. To make a contribution to the body, in other words. This is how you participate in the body of Christ. It's as simple as that. You take what he's given you and you repurpose it for his glory. And you listen to what he says and you take action on his word. And that builds the body of Christ. Imagine what it would look like if every day for us as believers was a Palm Sunday. If every day were a welcoming of our king into our lives. Imagine if we lived our lives constantly worshiping him along with all creation, conscious of the way that everything around us is oriented towards his praise. Imagine if we recognized Jesus as the fulfillment of all of our hopes and didn't look to have our needs fulfilled in anyone else. If we repurposed everything that he had given us and used it to glorify him, and we diligently acted on everything that he said. If we did that, then every sacrifice we made would be a hosanna. And every act of obedience would be a palm branch cast at his feet like a crown. We should do more than imagine what it would be like to live that way. We should pray to God that by the power of his spirit, we would taste that life. Because everything else is just an illusion and a distraction. This is the life that God made us. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.